<clears throat> well, we come to this point in our study, sent the Acts of Christians that changed the world to the book of Acts chapter 15 today. It's a critical point in the life of the church. It's been about 15 to 20 years since the resurrection of Jesus. So you have all these people, the word has spread, new people who have come to faith in Jesus since his, his time on earth. And so um, younger generations coming up, and lot, one of the questions is, okay, well, what is the message that is being proclaimed, and what message are they hearing as it continues to spread? You've ever played the telephone game when you were a kid, like where you like say a message in somebody's ear, like you give a sentence and you whisper it in their ear, and they have to whisper it in the next person's ear, and, and it comes all the way around, and it's not the same, right? And so here we have this time of, of 20 years-ish, and is the message, what's going on with the message of the gospel, of the good news of Jesus? Is it the same message? That's kind of what's happening here. How will it shape their lives? And that's what the debate is in Acts chapter 15. So follow along with me. The first 11 verses I'm going to read, we'll cover the whole chapter, but I'm just going to read the first 11 verses. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers Unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear. No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. Holy Spirit, I pray that you'll bless the reading of your word, which is holy, which is relevant today as it was thousands of years ago when it was written. Use it to strike our hearts, to convict us, to encourage us, and to shape our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The grass withers and the flowers fall, says Scripture, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Um, many of you have probably been watching the Olympics. Um, I know our household has been. And um, the Olympics this year, I guess maybe like every year, I don't know, but at least this year have been filled with decisions and disputes, um, controversy, sharp disagreements, right? The most recent one that I remember was over a 15-year-old Russian figure skater who tested positive for illegal drugs, illegal substances that she was not allowed to have in her body and compete. Um, yet, in fact, she was allowed to compete, but then failed to make the medal podium due to a tragic fall in her routine. 
Um, her teammate, one of her teammates, got the silver, silver medal but was livid and upset about it and visibly angry with her coach and was heard to say that she hates the sport and she wouldn't go out on the ice. Like, wow. I mean, those in leadership, whether it was coaches or whether it was the International Olympic Committee, acted in ways that were inconsistent with the Olympic values and the Olympic message, right? I mean, they just, they weren't consistent with it. You might be like, yeah, they weren't. And then sometimes, though, you and I are the same way, right? We say one thing and then we do another. It's a human condition. And the thing is that we get upset at it because we know it shouldn't be that way. Like one's message and one's life ought to concur and agree. The message you proclaim should be the message that you embody, that you live out. And it's true in the church, and in Acts chapter 15 it's true also, right? And the truth is that the church is sent out to proclaim and embody the gospel of Jesus Christ. Both of those things are true. And I want to look at those two things with you today, that the church is sent to proclaim the gospel. We've talked about this through the book of Acts. We talk about it all the time. It's what we're supposed to do, to go out and proclaim the gospel. But while we are to go out and proclaim the gospel, we also need to guard the gospel. We need to guard the gospel. Um, Guarding the gospel message is a big deal in this passage, a really big deal. It's why the whole council's there. It's why they've come to Jerusalem. And so... They're there, and they're talking about this message, and the reason it's a big deal is because the question they have to address in it is, how is one saved? How does one become a Christian? And there was different messages that were given. Did you notice those as we read the text? Right? One of the messages that was given was in verse 5 by the group of the Christian Pharisees. Look there. Let's put verse 5 on the screen. Notice what it says. Some of the believers, okay, that means those who are following Jesus, but they also belong to the party of the Pharisees. That was a religious group, right? And for those of you who know your Bibles well, you remember the Pharisees. Oh, you don't want to be pharisaical, hypocritical. Those are the people that had all the laws and everything. And, and, and so they're part of that party, okay? And they're saying, we believe in Jesus, but the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. Now, We didn't read it in this text, but you may remember that Jesus said in Matthew 28, yes, you should make converts. Mm -hmm. You should make converts. But when you make them, it's not that they have to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses. In Matthew 28, Jesus told his disciples, make converts, make disciples, baptize them and teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. Different messages. Peter remembers what Jesus said. And in verses 10 and 11, we can put this on the screen. Um, Peter makes his argument, stands up and says, so now then why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? Now, no, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are, right? In other words, Peter is saying, no, salvation does not come by keeping the, the ceremonial laws of Moses, by keeping the law of Moses, by being circumcised. That's not how salvation comes. It's not Jesus and keep all those laws. It comes by grace through Jesus Christ. Putting your faith in him. That's how salvation happens. Peter is making that case pretty vividly. In fact, he tells a story, um, or he did a few chapters ago, right? That he went to Cornelius, who was not Jewish. Cornelius believes, but he doesn't make him get circumcised. He baptizes him. The Spirit comes on him. 
And so one of the questions I guess we should address here before we go much further is, are Jesus and Moses two huge key figures in the Bible? Are they at odds with each other? Because you've got one group saying, follow Moses, and another one saying, follow Jesus. So what gives? How does that work? Jesus, we're told throughout the, the New Testament, especially talking about Jesus' life, that he comes. In the book of Hebrews, by the way, which is one of those Bible studies, we'll tell you this ad nauseum for like 12 or 13 chapters to make sure it's pounded into your head. That Jesus came and fulfilled the Old Testament ceremonial laws. He came and filled the kosher law, if you want to think of them as the kosher laws, the food laws, the dietary laws, the temple laws about going to worship. He fulfilled all those so that they're no longer necessary. Jesus also instructed people, though, teaching them from the law, that is from the Old Testament, from what Moses had written, the Ten Commandments. He upholds the moral law. Jesus is not saying Moses is worthless or what Moses taught. No, He's saying Moses is extremely valuable. It's the foundation on which I come and I fulfilled the commands about all the ceremonial regulations. And I fulfilled the commands, in fact, about all the moral laws. Jesus says you don't have to keep the ceremonial uh, regulations. The moral laws are still in effect. What does that mean? It means like the things like don't lie, don't murder, don't steal, no idols, sexual immorality. All those things Jesus upholds. The ceremonial things circumcision, about what kind of animal you have to have for sacrifice to cover sins, about how many days you're unclean, those things? No. They're, full, they're completed. They're done. And that matters because truth is important. It matters because what Jesus is proclaiming in the good news is that there isn't all this stuff that you must do to present yourself to God. What he is saying is you can be presented to God because of what Jesus has done for you on your behalf. That is his grace given to you so that you are presented to God, pure, radiant, clean, covered, washed, sanctified, justified. All those terms you want to use, Jesus is saying, no, this is the way it is. And, and now the question has come up and they're like, is this really the way it is? And Peter and the apostles and the elders are like, yes, that is the way it is. Why does that matter? Because it matters. If they didn't say it, then it means you cannot depend if that's not the way it is, you cannot depend on the grace of Jesus for your salvation. It would be you got Jesus plus something else, because that's what they were teaching. You would need Jesus plus something else that you could contribute. His sacrifice would not be enough. But thanks be to God, the good news, that is the gospel, the good news is it's actually good news, and it is enough. The sacrifice is enough. And it's hard for us to understand that because in life, we're like, okay, yes, I need to follow Jesus. And yeah, and I better add this on too just to make sure I'm good with God because God, when God looks at me, he'll be like, yeah, you're forgiven, but I also want to add this on and say, but didn't I impress you with this, God? Because this, this will make the difference, like in case there was something I messed up. Like we play those games with God. But the truth about grace is it's amazing as we sing. It's liberating. It's freeing. There's a, an illustration I've used before about a man that a family in our church knows. He's from... Charleston, South Carolina. His name's John Zoll. He's an Episcopal priest, and this story just captures this so well, this idea of liberating, free, radical, amazing grace. When he goes to take charge of this parish, this church, somebody in the church owned a, um, 
a local clothing store, a fine, fine clothing store for men. And so um, he gave him a, a gift certificate to the store and said, come to the store and, and get some clothes. So he, John goes to the store, plans to get clothes, figuring I'll get some clothes. And then because he was so generous, I'll get some extra clothes, throw them on there, and I'll pay for those to help out his business and support him. And, you know, I don't want to just take everything for free. It'll help out. So that's what he does. He gets the clothes shops like, man, these are great. Goes up, puts them on the counter on the, for where the register is. And the owner rings it up and says, um, okay, it looks like you've used about half your gift certificate. He's like, what? So he leaves, goes home and gets his wife and says, we've got a problem. I've only used half of it. I need you to help me pick out more clothes. We've got to, like, get double the clothes. So they go back. They pick out more clothes, put them all on the counter. He puts it up there, and the owner says, okay, yeah, your balance is exactly zero. And he goes, what? And he tells his wife, go get something else. Get something else. Put it on the counter. And the owner of the store kind of shakes his head and, and, and looks at him and says, I don't think you understand how a gift works. It doesn't matter how many clothes you get and put on this counter. The balance will always be zero. It's a gift. And that's the truth of the gospel with Jesus. Is like, we're like, Jesus plus this, Jesus plus that. And he's like, no, it's a gift. It truly is free, and it's amazing and liberating. And it should be exciting to us that he saves us by his grace alone. And so that message is what they are safeguarding. And they're saying, this is important. We cannot diverge from that message. The apostles and the elders say that, and so they're sent to proclaim the gospel, and that means they will keep proclaiming that gospel as throughout the rest of the book of Acts and throughout history as the gospel goes forward. That's the gospel they're proclaiming. But not only are they sent to proclaim that gospel, right, because that's the message, but their life should match the message. They must embody that gospel. And that's kind of the second half of Acts chapter 15 that we didn't read just because of the length of it, but I'm going to walk you through. There's two parts I want to talk to you about in this. They are sent in embodying the gospel to embody it in their fellowship and in their leadership. In their fellowship and in their leadership. It tells us in verses 19 and 20, we could put those verses on the screen. Um, It tells us there, um, this is James speaking, by the way. And you're like, oh, James, yes, James who? Um, This is James, the brother of Jesus, who has become one of the leaders in the Jerusalem church. Now, that's kind of its own story because he and Jesus didn't get along so well. He thought Jesus was cuckoo. But after the resurrection at some point, he becomes a Christian and a leader in the Jerusalem church. And he says this, it's my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles... That is, non-Jewish people who are turning to God. Instead, we should write them to tell them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from meat of strangled animals, and from blood. So here's what they decide to do. We're going to embody this gospel message by doing these things. This is their advice they're giving to him. Big debate. People come from all over the place. Big conference in Jerusalem. They're there for days. And this is the advice. So it should be important. It's also noteworthy that it's not like a whole other book of the Bible. It's like a short letter. Here's what you should do. And so what he instructs them to do is, uh, are those four things. And the, so let's talk about those four things. The first one is to abstain from food offered to idols. Um, abstaining from food offered to idols. Why is he saying that? What he is saying at its foundation is he's saying what Moses said. 
no other gods, no idols, right? Worship God alone. That's what he's saying. So abstain from that. Make sure you're worshiping God alone. It was popular in culture of the day that food um, that they would get in the marketplace was slaughtered in the marketplace, offered to the gods and the idols in the marketplace, and then brought for sale for people. And so as they buy it, they're saying, yes, these are our gods that have provided this for us. And he's saying, be careful how you do this and avoid uh, idolatry in it. <clears throat> we have, um, uh, we've got, a, uh, this summer, there's a mission trip that people are taking to Belize, which is great. In the past, we've taken some different places. Um, and one of the places that we've gone in England was to work with South Asian people. So uh, people who are Hindu um, or maybe um, different uh, sects of Hinduism. And one of the things that we've done when we've gone there is, is go to Hindu temples, not to worship, but to understand what's it like. And so we go into these places, and they're all over the place. Some of them are little tiny shops, um, like, in a, like at the end of like a strip mall kind of thing, just on the street. And some of them are big, massive temples like, that would dwarf uh, this building. Um, so in one of these little ones, we go in there, and there's a woman, and she is pouring milk, probably coconut milk, over a statue before one of the idols of their gods. And so we're asking about it, and, and she's saying yes. And so she, she says, now you take milk and pour and repeat after me. And our leader with us says, we're not going to do that. Um, we want to learn about what you're doing, but not participate in your rites. And she said, okay. And so we just watched, and then we left, and we talked about it. Another time we went into uh, a different one, and we sat and talked with this guru for a while about what they think and believe, and it was very interesting. And as we were leaving... Um, he handed us a bag of fruit. Now, while we were in there, there's all these idols everywhere, and fruit and vegetables are being put in front of them and offered to them as, as people pray over them. And so he gives us some of this fruit as we're leaving, and we got like a mile walk back to the church we're going to, and some of the kids are hungry and want a snack, and he won't give it to them. And they're like, why not? He's like, read your Bibles. Because they were just offered to idols. And just because you want a snack should not be a reason for you to thoughtlessly go about thinking that there's nothing significant to this as they were just offered to idols. Right? He wanted them to be thoughtful about this and say, hey, hold on a second here. In other words, he was saying, worship God alone. You know, it's common for us to think, yeah, every path leads to God, it's all good. And he's saying, well, no, what they were doing is there's something real there, but not not good. So that was part of the advice of the Jerusalem Council is to avoid food sacrificed to idols. Another part of what they advised was to avoid sexual immorality. Christians, in other words, should uphold the sexual ethic that the Bible teaches, that Moses taught, that Jesus taught. Both of them taught the same thing on that, right? Being that it is intended within the context of marriage between a man and a woman. And, um, and so this is what they're supposed to uphold. Now, why would he write that? Because in the day, and remember they're writing to people who are not in Jerusalem, predominantly in other cultures, Greek and Roman cultures, um, it was very sexually free, right? They were liberated. Um, in fact, you could go to temple, you could go to a religious place, a religious site, and there you could participate in temple prostitution, which was a fertility rite to bring blessing on you, your family, and, and so forth. So he says, don't do that. You might think, yeah, duh, don't do that. But I think 
America is a lot more like that than we might admit. What, what do I mean? That, that temple prostitution, that religious rights with sexual expression tied to it. I mean, think of it this way. America has similar religious experiences and practices. The place of worship is different, but the same kind of stuff happens, right? There's, there's the uh, worship that happens uh, for the god of beauty in Hollywood, and it's highly sexualized. There's worship that happens for the god of money on Wall Street, the god of fame and sports and music and entertainment, And all of those have their religious-like expression, their devotion, their dedication, their commitment, their cheering, their giving of money to go participate in it, their shaping of their life, their reading all the stats and data and books about it and everything and saying, yes, this is my team, this is my cause, this is my person, this is my thing. And they're all tied and laced with sexuality. Even prostitution. The Super Bowl is one of the most uh, human-trafficked events in America every year for the sake of prostitution. We would do well to avoid sexual immorality. The other two things that he says is, uh, the third and fourth thing are meat of strangled animals and blood, both having to do with the kosher food laws and saying, okay, avoid these two. And what is he talking about here? Those kosher food laws uh, brought sanitary measures for uh, the Jews as they would uh, eat their food. But also, it was a a way for them to um, fulfill temple rites so that they could go to worship. And we mentioned this earlier. It all pointed for them to need somebody, uh, a clean way, a perfect way, a firstborn sacrifice that was without blemish or flaw for them to go to God in temple. But Jesus came and was the firstborn, is perfect, and fulfilled all of those things, all those temple regulations. And so they're over. So what is he saying then? Why still do this? What James is doing here, I think, is he is saying that embodying this gospel means you need to love one another well in a shared life together. While there are no more questions about requiring Gentiles to keep ceremonial laws, we've said no, they're not required for that for salvation. What James is doing is saying, in order to embody the gospel and love your neighbor well, you should learn to eat together and do it respecting different food customs in the culture. Now, one scholar writes of it this way and says, they should be considerate of their weaker brothers of Jewish birth who had not yet acquired such an emancipated outlook on food laws as Peter and Paul had. Hospitality is important to unity. Like, that's what we do in culture, right? We hang together, we go to the bar together, we eat together. And James is saying, hey, this is what's important, and you better be able to eat together. So respect one another's customs and cultural differences without making it an issue of salvation. It would be like going to, right? I mean, remember, like, there's Jews everywhere. They've spread out all over the, the known world at the time because of the, what was called the diaspora, and they were scattered. They're everywhere. So whenever Christians who are following Jesus find Jews who are following Jesus, they're going to have this like, mm, it's, well, I, that's not what we eat. Mm. It'd be like going into the South and saying to somebody, yeah, you cannot eat pork barbecue grits or drink that sweet tea. Better change it. What are you talking about? That's the craziest thing I've ever heard. Or somebody from the North, maybe in Maine, going, yeah, no more lobster rolls for you because that's shellfish. Like, right? Like, why would we do that? And James is saying, 
Those should not cause divide. The cultural expectations should not cause divide for people. And it, may, it should make us ask this question. What cultural expectations, what denominational customs make it difficult for those not like us to have fellowship with us? Boy, we could probably spend a long time on that list. Things that I probably haven't even thought of. I'll mention a few. One is um, let's raising hands in worship, right? Some people like to raise their hands up during the worship service, which is great. The Bible talks about that. That's a good thing to do. Some people are very emotional. Some people are like, nope, I'm just I'm logical, and this is what I do. And it's okay. It's different experiences, but that shouldn't stop us from going, hey, I can't go there because that person's raising their hands, or I can't go there because that person's stiff as a board. Like, that shouldn't separate us in terms of worship. And, and raising hands isn't that weird, really. I mean, unless you're at a concert, you know, cheering for a sports team. No, wait, you do it there, too. Yes, go my favorite sports team. Right, you're at a concert. This is so great. It's just receiving the feeling and the flow here. And, I mean, it's expression. It's what we do. Cheering for the victor. Saying, yes, give me the blessings. And that's what we're doing, right? Maybe as you're eating, like, you know people who are vegetarian or vegan or like their meat crawling onto the plate, a little bit rare, even bloody, right? But like those shouldn't be things that cause us to go, I can't eat with you. Other ones, maybe you're single, you're married but no kids, you're divorced, you're widowed, you're married and you've got like eight kids. Like none of those things should be things that go like, well, I just don't know. I can't, can't do that. Because in Jesus, we have more in common than we have different. The blood of Christ is what unites us. Because we still have things in common. We all have joys. We all have sorrows. We all have challenges. We all have faith. We all have doubts. And in those things, we can come together and be encouragers of one another and say we have unity around the core of the gospel message. My final thing to talk to you about is this, embodying the gospel in our leadership, right? They give this advice to them saying you must embody the gospel and it's important for your fellowship. It's also important to embody it in your leadership. And this is interesting as, as they talk about this. It says that, the, and this is one of the first places where we really see this come about, but it says that the church was led as they gathered by the apostles and the elders. It says it in verses 2, 4, 6, and 22. It repeats it time and time again. It's led by the apostles and elders. They're all there together doing that. Um, And the question of how they lead is also really important. Um, And there's a lot of other places in the Bible that talk about leadership and how they lead. That would be good for us to look at, but we don't have time today. So I'm just going to look at this narrow slice and a few things that they do say, these are probably important aspects for leadership because they're mentioned here. It's not the full list. It's not comprehensive, but it's a few things. One of the things that we notice is there's deliberation, right? They come and they meet together. That's important because when it's, what it's going to do is helpfully help them, help them see biases and remove preferences. Other people could see that, that they don't see their blind spots that might easily sway. And so hopefully they're saying, no, like, let's really consider, it, consider this matter and deliberate on it. The other thing we note is that their meetings are filled with Scripture, in, this was in verses 16 to 18, which we didn't read, but James, when he stands up to talk, quotes the Old Testament first. 
Peter talks about what Jesus instructed him to do. So in other words, their meetings are filled with the word of God, being guided by the word of God. Not only the word of God, but the work of the Holy Spirit. Peter says, we went and gave them the message, the spirit came on them and they believed. There was evidence, fruit of it. So one of the questions leaders have to ask is, where is the spirit of God working? Where's their fruit happening? Where's their opportunity? And questions that we help try to judge those things by, is it sinful? If it's sinful, we're not going to do it. Then it would be going against the word of God. But is it just, is this just like um, something that seems like it's a good idea? And maybe it is and you could do it. Or is it, do we really think the spirit's leading in this way? I mean, all those become things that leaders have to pray and talk about, that your elders here in this church have to pray and talk about. Um, They're sent with authority. Notice this in verse 22. Let's put verse 22 on the screen, if you would. It says, Then the apostles and elders, right? So there it is again, with the whole church. So this is everybody gathered here. um, Decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. Now, this is what I want you to see. Why do they do that? Why do they send some of their own people from Jerusalem to go back with Paul and Barnabas who had been in Antioch? Why do they do that? Because they're sending corroborating messengers. They're sending authorities saying, we are sending people from Jerusalem, not from Antioch who came to Jerusalem or going back to Antioch. We're sending people from Jerusalem to you to say, yes, here they come with authority. And so that's what they do. In verse 24, we know this is what they do because, um, put that one on there, it says, we've heard, this is in their letter, we've heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you. In other words, we're saying, we didn't send those others who were telling you this other message to be circumcised and follow the law of the Moses. We didn't do that. Those we're sending to you have our authority. This is what you're supposed to do. I think we probably all recognize authority is a, with authority comes responsibility. And exercising spiritual authority and leading means at least that you got to be humble, realizing your own biases and weaknesses, right? Admitting your own sin. It's not like uh, me as your pastor or your elders are above you and that, that we don't sin anymore. That's not true at all. <laughs> like, just cast that away. It'll really help and your expectations won't be so high. Um, you'd be like, oh, you need Jesus too? Yes! That's the gospel we believe. But it helps us to be humble, to know, yes, we need Jesus. We should be honest about truth, the truth that God proclaims versus error in what God proclaims, and make that clear. And we should lead with kindness that encourages people. I don't know if you noticed that, but in, well, you wouldn't have noticed it because I haven't read those verses to you. Let's put up verses 31 and 32. Um, toward the end of this, when they go, the people read the letter that was presented, um, And they're glad for its encouraging message. And then verse verse 32 said, they encourage and strengthen the believers. So what's the result of them coming with authority? The result is they're glad, they're encouraged, and they're strengthened in the faith. They've received grace and they've given grace. In other words, the gospel's been proclaimed, the good news of God's grace has been proclaimed, and it's been embodied. It's been brought in that same way. There's a story I once heard that I think is true, as far as I know, about a young man who was in college named Bill. He was kind of a, he was kind of a hippie. Um, his wardrobe was a t-shirt and jeans with holes in it, usually no shoes. Um, brilliant. Um, 
He became a Christian during college, and across the street from the campus, there was a church who wanted to welcome and reach out to the college students. He decided he was going to go one day. He's like, I'm just going to go, whatever, we'll try it out. So he goes, uh, he walks into the church with no shoes, with his, you know, with what he wears, his jeans that are covered in holes in his, his t-shirt and his hair that's kind of wild. He, um, a service had already began, begun, he was a little bit late, he was on spring run time, and um, he comes in the... It's true. It's just true, right? Um, he comes in the doors, and he's looking around for a seat. He's like, there's no seats. And so he just makes his way down the aisle towards the front, looking for seats, and there's none. And the minister's kind of looking at him, and he just sits down right in the middle of the aisle. Okay. And the minister sees what other people don't see. An older statesman in the congregation who was in his 80s who had been in the back in his suit and tie, gets up out of a seat, has a cane. He's walking down the aisle toward the back of that man. He's like, "Uh uh-oh. Is he going to get taught a lesson? Is that cane going to get put to use? What is going to happen? And he sits down on the floor next to him and says, okay, you can preach. And the preacher says, what I have to say to you you will never remember. But what you have just seen, you will never forget. Because he embodied the gospel. Will you? Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that you will help us to be people who guard truth, who proclaim the gospel, but also who embody it and live it out in everyday life. Help us to be people that have been so filled with grace that it drips out of us. That we would, in our fellowship, love to be together. In our leadership, lead with humility and grace. And we pray that you will bless the work of of our hands in the ministry of this church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.